You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2-15-17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, uh, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 9-8-17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between you, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Genesis 22, 15-18 And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I I will surely bless you, and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. We uh, are going to be in the book of Genesis. You can take a look and pull out one of these or one of the Bibles underneath. What I want to do is we have spent um, a good chunk of 2021 in Genesis, and we're going to be picking up next week in Genesis chapter 23. But today, what I want to do, since we've taken a little break, and maybe some of you are new, is basically summarize Genesis 1 to 22 in one message today. So we're going to try to get ourselves all the way caught up in the flow of what's going on. So if you look at this little thing, pages 1 through 92 will be handled today, all right? We got a couple of things. Um, that are working against me a little bit today. One, this is a tough message to put together, so hopefully it's coherent. I'm doing my best. Secondly, you can probably tell that my voice is is struggling a little bit today, so we're going to try to work together to get through um, a good chunk of text today. Um, We're not going to go through every single little bit of it, but I want to give you a big framework so that when we get into Genesis chapter 23, we understand where we've been and how the flow of the story has gone. We can resume the story, so to speak. So for us, my family, you, many of you know, we've been through, uh, been thinking about a lot of things lately. And one, uh, one thing that's been uh, really huge right now is just Haiti, the nation of Haiti and the events that have been going on in the, in the nation of Haiti. In fact, I think I have a picture here of just a couple of things that have been significant going on in Haiti. And of course, many of you know about the national story about the Haiti missionaries who were down there and got kidnapped by a gang and held for ransom a million dollars apiece and just recently escaped just a couple of weeks ago. Well, at the, at the same, so these are some of our brothers and sisters who were kidnapped uh, who, for doing the Lord's work and being held uh, captive there and just recently escaped uh, kind of in the middle of the night. That's kind of a grainy picture. That's the best I could do. Um, but uh, pretty a harrowing story of how they were delivered from, uh, from bondage, how they were delivered from, uh, from uh, they, they snuck out kind of in the middle of the night and followed the stars. And uh, it was just amazing how they were delivered. God preserved all of their lives and just a phenomenal thing. But underneath of all that big national story is that we have been working hard to get Bianca home. And her orphanage is in the same neighborhood as this whole thing that's been going on. So there's these two things that have kind of been going on, at least in our lives, is concern about our brothers and sisters in a hostile country, but then also at the same time, wanting to bring this girl home into our family, and things have been going well, by the way. But uh, those two things of, of kind of deliverance from 
um, from being kidnapped and being brought into a new family. I think um, both of those things have been hard to get out of my mind as I've looked at this text. Because the original recipients of the book of Genesis are the Exodus Israelites. They are people who have just been delivered by God out of Egypt, by Moses, by the hand of Moses. God has done this miraculous work to deliver them out of the hand of bondage, out of oppression and slavery for 400 years. And now they're in the desert with this God that they've just met, that this God that they're, they have some vague recollections and some stories about, but they're getting to know this new God. And so I can't get these two stories kind of out of my mind of this miraculous deliverance from bondage and what that must be like. And then also to be pulled out of everything you know and then brought into a new family with a new father God that you're getting to know, just like our daughter is processing right now of in a relationship with this new family. That's really where the book of Genesis is presented is Moses is writing this account under the inspiration of God to these people that are in the desert after being delivered from Egypt And this is their story. This is their backstory. Just like sitting down with Bianca and scrolling through pictures of who her dad is and who her siblings are. God, the book of Genesis is the story of how God gathered you as a people, how he made promises to you, how he made the world and what went wrong with the world. And so in this desert, these people are being reintroduced to their God and and being brought into a relationship with him. And so when we think about this uh, book of Genesis, and as we're studying it, we need to realize the original audience would be receiving this in that context. And that then helps us understand how we're to receive this book of beginnings, this book of the origin story of all things. And then um, as it was originally given to that original audience by Moses. Um, and so what I want to do as we, as, we, as we get this big picture of how all things began, um, I want to go, you can go to the next slide here. Um, God's faithfulness, Adam to Abraham. That's what we're going to look at today. And Sarah read each of those texts. We're going to look at each of those texts today. But if you want to go to my next slide there. So the context of Genesis is that God is speaking his story through Moses to Exodus Israel, the nation of Israel, as they've been brought out miraculously and are being reintroduced to this God that they've um, that they've known about, they've heard things about, they've seen pictures of and heard stories of, but they, but they're just now gathered at Mount Sinai and they're having to trust this new God. What is he like? How does this work? What is our story? How do we relate to him? Genesis sets the, sets the framework for all of that. Three key words I want to talk about in the book of Genesis are first the word God. God is the main character. He's in every chapter. He is at the beginning. He's at the end. He's all throughout. This is ultimately the Genesis story is a story about God. It's an autobiography. It is God's story of himself written through human beings. Throughout the book of Genesis, as we get introduced to this God who is, this God above all gods, this God who defeats Egyptian gods, this God who leads people and makes promises, we have seven different names in the book of Genesis for God. We have El Olam in chapter 21, the everlasting God, which is what uh, Abraham calls God when he is brought the fruition, uh, the promise to fruition. Isaac is finally born and he has a well and he has a tree. If you remember that message, El Olam, the everlasting God. At the end of the book, we'll see that God is named Yahweh Ra'ah, which is Yahweh is my shepherd. You ever heard that before? The Lord is my shepherd. That, that theme first pops up at the beginning of Genesis, that this God that Israel is getting to know and getting reintroduced to is like a shepherd. Another name for God in the book of Genesis is El Elyon, which means God the Most High. Happens four times, all in chapter 14, uh, where God is the Most High, the God above all gods, the God above all things, the God who is supreme. Another name for God, the fourth name for God is El Shaddai, which happens five times in chapter 17, 28, 35, 43, and 48. El Shaddai, maybe you've heard that name before, which means God the Almighty One. Not only is he above all things, but he has power over all things. He is sovereign over things. The fifth name we have for God in Genesis happens eight times, named Adonai, which means master or Lord. He's my king. Happens in chapter 15, 18, 19, and 20, where Abraham is relating to God as a master. He's in charge, and Abraham is his servant. 
And then the two most common names in the book of Genesis for God, the two titles are Yahweh. I am that I am over 142 times. Yahweh, his personal name, I am who I am. That name gets explained a little more in in Exodus, but uh, it's used throughout Genesis and it's his covenant name. It's the name that you use when you're in relationship with God. It's his covenant name by which he draws people close. Um, you know, if you, if you meet someone who is of high stature and you go, hello, Mr. President, hey, call me Bill or call me Joe. Joe's the president right now, right? Okay, Joe, right? You come up and you use a title, but God also gives his people the opportunity to come and use his personal name, his covenant name. I am that I am Yahweh, which is used throughout the book of Genesis 142 times, which is going to be significant as we get to that third word covenant, which is going to make up the bulk of what we talk about today. And then the name that's used the most in Genesis for God is Elohim, which means the powerful one. It's just the the general name for God, the all-powerful God. So out of the gate, when we learn about the beginnings of everything, we realize that God is at the center, that God is the, the source of the story, that he is the foundation of all of these things. And the most important thing about Israel is not their power, not their numbers, not even their history. It's about their God. It's who they're related to with God. It is that God has chosen them. The most important thing about them is God. The most important thing about you is God. The most important thing about reality is the God who is made and is behind all of it. The second word there is toledot. That's a a Hebrew word for these are the generations of. That happens 10 times throughout the book of Genesis and serves almost like the chapters of Genesis. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, it says in chapter 2, verse 4. Do I have a slide that shows these or not? Is that on the next slide or not? Toledot? No, I don't. I didn't put it in. I meant to, but I didn't. So you can go back. It happens 10 different times throughout the book of Genesis and serves kind of as a chapter heading, is that these are the generations of, and then you get a list of names sometimes. Sometimes you get a story. But it serves as this marker throughout the book that shows us that God is telling one story. And he puts connective tissue between the stories. These are not just random stories to just give you moral lessons. These aren't Aesop's fables to learn lessons. We do learn lessons. But there is a narrative. There's a story that's being played out. And human history is the canvas by which God is writing his story. So he, we have the distinct privilege of human beings giving birth to more humans, giving birth to more humans. Human time is the paper God writes his story on. And human beings, particular characters, get to be the instrument, like the pen and ink by which he writes his story, is the lives of these people, like Adam and Abraham and Noah. They get the privilege of being the way God writes out his story is the human lives, and it's the unfolding of human time through these generations. In chapter um, 2, 4, we get the very first one of these, the generations of the heavens and the earth. From 5, 1 to 6, 8, the generations of Adam. From 6, 9 to 9, 29 of Noah. From 10, uh, the chap- basically chapter 10 of Noah's sons. From, cha- from chapter 11, uh, we have the descendants of Shem and of Terah. In chapter 25 of Ishmael. In, also in chapter 25 of Isaac. In chapter 36 of Esau. In chapter 37 to the end of the book is about the genealogy of Jacob. And uh, maybe I'll show you that in the future. Um, So then the third word, so God, God's at the center. And then the structure of the book is arranged around these 10 Toledot chapters where God puts these stories together in chapters that are marked by these are the generations of and God puts connective tissue by giving you names and dates and people to show that people are the the paper and ink and pen by which God is writing his story. All right. I think you got that. Covenant, then, is our last one. And this is where we want to spend the rest of our time. Covenant is an oath-bond relationship between people. You know of a a marriage covenant. You know of, you know, those kinds of covenants where people are making an oath to one another with blessings and curses. Well, God is the originator of that. And really, if you're going to understand the story of Scripture, you need to understand the idea of covenant, that God in his kindness and his grace establishes an oath bond relationship with little teeny tiny human beings like you and me. 
And we have three of them. We have three big covenants that come out right away in the first few chapters of the book, which tell us so much about God. That God is the kind of God who is desiring a relationship, willing to commit himself to a relationship with human beings, even very flawed and sinful human beings. So let's spend just a few minutes looking at these first 22 chapters and looking at it from the perspective of covenant. All right, so here we go. I think we have an outline on the next slide here. So chapter 1, 1 to chapter 2, 3 is prologue. This is the backstory. This is the setup of the story, how we go from there only being God to now there being a story, a narrative, characters, and a plot and a setting. We have Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, this is how the whole book starts. This is how everything starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right away, we get two categories of existence. We get the uncreated category and we get the created category, right? Right out of the gate, it talks about in the beginning was God. There has to be something that's eternal. We all get that. Like that's just logically, there has to be something that's eternal. Some things don't come from nothings, right? So there has to have always been an eternal something. Now, some would argue that that's matter that somehow exploded and became all the things, right? But you have to have something. You have to start with something. And what the Bible argues is that the something is not a something, but a someone. That the beginning of all things doesn't start with matter, super compressed matter, but a thinking being, all-powerful being. There is one uncreated thing, and it is a person. It is God. And then everything else is created. Everything else is in the created category. So the, the Bible argues from that, assumes that in the very first chapter. In the beginning, God already exists. No explanation of where he came from, why he's here. He just is. There's no way to answer those questions because he's eternal and he's perfect. And so we get right away in this very first chapter that the uncreated one is a person that he is eternal, he has always existed outside of time, that he is sufficient, meaning that he needs no other things. He himself is sufficient. He is necessary because without him, none of the other things matter or exist. You take God out of the equation, you take everything out because everything is built on him. This very first verse, he's eternal, he's sufficient, he's necessary, he's sovereign, he's king over all these things because he made it. He is omnipotent, meaning that he can do all the things that can be done, God can do those things. And he's transcendent. He's above and beyond. And so right away in this very first verse, these original readers and us down the line would be blown away by a God who is bigger and better and more glorious than we could ever imagine. He's eternal, sufficient, necessary, sovereign, omnipotent, and transcendent. We get that in the very first words. But then we get these created things. And and through the rest of Genesis chapter 1, we see that God carefully planned and produced all other things. He created all other things. As you read through over the course of these seven days, he creates things. They are designed and then they're interdependent. They exist within a system. They exist within the universe and there's this interdependent relationship of all other created things. They are designed and dependent upon him and we get day after day where God forms um, in the first three days, forms realms, and then fills those realms on the next three days. And he declares it good. He speaks it into existence. He's a God who speaks, and he's a God who creates, and he's a God who makes complementary pairs, sun and moon, land and sea. And he makes human beings. And um, in Genesis chapter one, we get to day six. And I think this is up on the screen too. I want to read part of this. Sarah read it as, uh, no, she didn't read this one. But we get to this point where uh, God is creating and speaking all these things and he's rendering judgment and declaring them good. And then we get to day six and we get this really special conversation where God has with himself. Let us make man in our own image. So there's something special about human beings. There's something really unique about them. And I'm just gonna read it to you. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We're going to put someone in charge of this who's going to be made in our image, who's going to be like God in some ways. He's going to be in the created category, but it's going to be a super creation. It's going to be a someone who represents me. And so verse 27, so 
God decided this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So this complementary pair, male and female, equal and yet distinct and matching in all the right ways. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Because these generations, this multiplying of these people is going to be the telling of his story. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you. So God opens it up with a gift, a blessing and a gift, which tells us so much about God. It's not coming in with a bunch of rules per se, but a blessing and a gift. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So you have this glorious introduction, this glorious prologue of a God who had takes such care to build these things, to build this universe by which he could then place his image bearers and have a relationship with them and bless them and give them gifts. This is the kind of God who is. This is the kind of God who has delivered these people out of, the, out of Egypt and now gathers them in a mountain and says, this is, I want to have this relationship with you. This is what things were meant to be like. Which then brings us to the next um, the next section, which is God's covenant with Adam and his descendants. So then we get the first Toledot. It's like the book now begins in chapter two, verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And so then we get this zoomed in picture in chapter two, where God makes man out of the dust of the earth and makes the woman from taking a rib from the man to show that they are united. They're one humanity. They're not two distinct creations. They're two parts of the same creation. Show how interconnected how important, how they share in the same destiny. They share in the same mission. They share in the same relationship with God. And then God, before creating the woman, creates a covenant with the man, creates the covenant with the human being. And uh, this is in chapter two, verse, oh, I should have organized my notes more intuitively here. Verse 15 the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we don't have the word covenant here, bereshit in Hebrew, but we have the elements of a covenant. We have a, an agreement, an oath between God with blessings and curses that, hey, this is the promise that if you live this way, you'll flourish. If you don't live this way, then you'll have my curse upon you. You'll have death upon you. Hosea 6, 7 speaks of this as a covenant that Adam transgressed the covenant. So right here we have this covenant that God makes with Adam and his descendants, which at this point is all of humanity. Everyone is included in this, uh, in this agreement. And so the destiny of the whole world now because God in chapter one put Adam and Eve in charge of everything. The destiny of everything is dependent on whether Adam and Eve will keep this covenant, this covenant of blessing, that if they, in a world full of yes, there's only one no, and you will honor me by obeying that no, and you will, you will stay within the covenant blessings, and you will stay, but if you disobey me, if you fixate on the one no, the one prohibition I've given you, and you rebel against me, then you'll surely die. You'll plunge the whole world into a curse, and on that day you will die. And of course, in chapter three, that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. There is an enemy that enters into the garden, and instead of banishing that enemy, like Adam should have, there's a conversation that happens between Satan, that serpent, and Eve. And, God, and Satan begins to redefine who God is in, in Eve's mind. And Eve then begins to question the goodness of God. And all of a sudden, this fruit looks like something that maybe God is withholding from them, that God is withholding the best thing from them, that somehow God is oppressive and unfair. How dare he treat us like this? And so at the level of desire, she begins to desire this fruit. And then her desire gives birth to taking the fruit and eating it. And then Adam, who was with her, eats of the fruit as well. 
And here's what happens is that all of humanity, Adam and his descendants are now under a curse. And I'm going to go ahead and read part of that in Genesis chapter 3. Here's how it plays out. Is they eat the fruit and then they run and hide because they know they broke the covenant. They know that they are now under a curse. It's not, it's not unclear to them that they're in trouble. And so here's what happens in chapter 3. The Lord, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. It just sounds ludicrous, right? But that's what sin does to us, right? Made no sense that she would eat that fruit, but she wanted to. And you think about that. Think about the sins you commit. And then afterwards you go, what was I thinking? The reality is you weren't thinking, right? Sin never makes sense after the fact. But somehow our desires short-circuit our brains and we begin to redefine truth, right? We begin to redefine who we are and who God is and this maybe isn't so bad. And then afterwards we get this moment of clarity and we're like, oh, what was I thinking? And the reality is we weren't. So they hide from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. What a sad statement that they're now, they're now afraid of God because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did you break the covenant? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit to eat and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? So Adam passes the buck. It's not my fault. The reason I broke the covenant is because you, God, gave me a defective woman. It's accusing God. Not only is he throwing her under the bus, but he's making an accusation about God. Do you see what's changed in his heart already? And the serpent said, or the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then God gives this really heavy curse. Let me just read this. And you tell me if you recognize any of this in the world now. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. This is to the serpent. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat the days of your life all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, that, that's an important thing that we'll come back to in a moment. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Is that true? Ladies, I don't know. Okay, okay. Yeah. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So all of these relationships are going to get tense. The thing you were made to do is now going to be hard, painful, difficult, heartbreaking. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which you, I had commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground and out of it you, for out of it you were taken and for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So you get this curse because all Adam and his descendants have broken the covenant. They now live in a cursed world. They live with cursed relationships. They live with cursed thinking about God, about each other, about relationships. Nothing works like it's supposed to. Creation works against you now. Relationships work against you. And you are destined for death and wrath because you've broken covenant with a holy God. So the covenant with Adam and his descendants was a good covenant and the humanity broke it. So then we get into chapter four. They're banished from the garden. They're no longer in the presence of God like they were before. They're under a curse. God in his kindness has given them a promise that a seed of a woman will crush the head of the serpent. He doesn't put them to death immediately, but death is coming. And so in God's kindness, children are born to Adam and Eve. And Cain is born. And you can see the exuberation. Uh, exuberation, is that the right word? She's excited about the fact that Cain is born. And she writes this kind of brief little poem that with the help of God, I have brought forth a man. And I think there's this hope that this seed of a woman, maybe the snake crusher is here. She has another son, Abel, and they bring offerings to the Lord and God is pleased with one and displeased with other. And then Cain gets so jealous of his brother 
and he begins to seethe with rage against his brother Abel because, because God accepted him. And God actually confronts, God actually comes to Cain personally and says, if you will do right, I will accept you as well. Why are you harboring this against me? And he says, the sin is crouching at the door of your heart, which tells us something because sin used to be crouching in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve fell for it. And now human beings now that are born to Adam and Eve now have sin crouching in their heart. The threat isn't on the outside anymore. The threat is on the inside. Every human being born now has in them a little bit of this cane is that it's our own hearts that now betray us. The sin and temptation and corruption is inside every descendant of Adam and Eve now. So the problem is not the big bad world out there. The problem is not the devil out there. Those are problems. But the biggest problem is that you and I have a betrayer inside of us coiling at the door. And Cain doesn't heed God's warning. He kills his brother and comes under a curse. And we just see that one bite of piece of fruit ends up in a brother murdering another in one generation. There are no small sins. Violations against God multiply over time. And then you just fast forward a few thousand years and look at where we're at today. That was all because Adam and Eve broke covenant with God. And we all have done the same thing because that same serpent coils up in our own hearts, that same sinful disposition. So all of humanity is in the same desperate state. And it gets worse and worse until you get to chapter 6, verse 8. Here's what happens. We're going to start speeding up, I promise. Chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men and they took them as their wives and they chose, I'm going to skip down to verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. These covenant breakers have multiplied. And their sin is multiplied. And their wickedness is multiplied. And their violence is multiplied. The sin of man was great on the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And that's where it gets in five plus chapters. So quickly, God's good world is totally wrecked. God's image bearers are now using their, their honored state to defy him, to destroy each other, to use each other. And then we get another covenant. Verse eight, but Lord, the, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we get another toledote, verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then Noah does. Over the course of the next several decades, he under the power and direction of God builds a boat, as crazy as this might sound. And then God sends a flood to wipe out rightfully the wickedness of the earth, to cleanse it, to wash it. But he preserves through judgment, salvation. And you, get, you read about that in chapter 7 and 8, and then you get into chapter 9 and God makes a covenant. He makes another covenant. Has Adam deserved to have that covenant? He didn't. God was pleased to give it, but Adam broke it. Noah, also, after being delivered through the flood and brought out, now you've got a new Adam in a new world that's been cleansed. And God makes a covenant then, this second covenant. Verses, um, verse 9, chapter 9, verses 11 through 17. So Adam or Noah and his family come out on this cleansed earth and it's like everything's fixed, right? The sin problem's done. 
all of the wickedness has been cleansed. I've got one righteous man and his family. We just need, if we just got the right guy, if we just got the right family and started fresh, everything would be great, right? So that's where we're at now. And in chapter nine, verse 11, God says this, I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So everyone was included in the covenant and the curse of Adam. Everyone gets to be included in the covenant of Noah, which comes with just pure blessing. Like, I'm just not going to destroy you that way anymore. There's no conditions. It's just, this is what I have decided. I will not judge you in this manner again. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow, like a warrior's bow. I've set it down. I have set down the warrior's bow. I've set it down. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, don't be afraid. The bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the world, all the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we have God making a promise. And maybe this new family is going to finally get it right. But you read on, right? Noah gets drunk in a vineyard, takes the fruit of the vine. His son commits some sort of sin that's a bit mysterious, but then you find out that you may be able to take, you may be able to take the man out of the corrupted world, but you can't take the corrupted world out of the man. At Noah, no matter how righteous he was, there's still sin in him. There's still sin in his children and sin is still going to spread. God could wash the world and start with any one of us and the world would still end up corrupt because all of us are corrupted by sin. And so that's what we see as the story continues to unfold. God continues to make promises. Humans continue to fail. God continues to be faithful to his covenants. We get to chapter 10 and we get the table of nations. All human beings descend from this one family. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They all have kids. They're very productive. They have kids, and every human being on the planet can be traced back to them. And it shows us, we get this really unique, what's called the table of nations in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, the people are called to scatter, to fill the earth. The original mandate is still in place, and they fail to do it. They decide that they're going to build a tower up to God. They're going to defy God and his command. And so God confuses their language and scatters them. In, as an act of judgment. And so again, there's judgment again, but then out of that comes a promise. Comes a promise to Abraham in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said, and here we have a new covenant being made. So now we have the covenant with Abraham and his descendants. 12, 1, 3. So the nations are spread out. How is God going to redeem these people? They don't speak the same language. They're all in different places. They have so much that separates and divides. They're going to be at war with each other. How is God going to bring about his redemptive plan? How is he going to gather them back up? And he comes up with a promise to a man named Abraham, a 75-year-old man who probably doesn't know this God at all. He and his wife have no kids. They're older. And God says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use a person. And what happens is really fascinating. In the first 11 chapters, we've been dealing with worldwide events like floods and towers. And, but then all of a sudden, we zero in for the rest of the book on one family. So it's like it goes from Google Earth view in chapters 1 through 11 to street view. Watch this one man. Watch this one man's family because I'm going to do my work through this little insignificant man. I'm going to use him. And here's what he does. He picks Abraham and goes, I'm going to go super, super uber small. I'm going to go mustard seed small. No one's going to notice this thing. Flood, everyone noticed that. Tower scattering, everyone noticed that. Now he's going to bring about his salvation plan by tracing this one little family over the course of a long period of time. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abraham, Abram just obeys. He just goes. He just picks up and moves based on that. And he begins to walk with this God that he's just met. He begins to follow him because he has a promise. He has a promise from God. And so he walks by faith in that promise. Salvation is going to come through him. A blessing is going to come through him. So in chapter 12, Adam, Abram obeys and goes with his wife Sarah, which is an up moment for Abram. Then in Genesis chapter 13, Abram gives his wife away to king of Egypt. That's a down moment for Abram. But he gets her back. God intervenes, gives his wife back, because you're going to need her help in bringing this kid into the world. Genesis 14, Abraham rescues his nephew Lot, who's been kidnapped and taken. And so this big military event happens, and Abram leads it courageously. God uses him. He meets this guy named Melchizedek, who is a messenger from God, and he worships rightly the God of Melchizedek. And so we have an up moment. So Genesis 12 is up. Genesis 13 is down. Genesis 14 is up. He's walking by faith. He's doing a good thing. Genesis 15, God ratifies the covenant by cutting two animals in half, and the covenant is made explicit. But only God passes through the parts, which means that this is going to be a covenant that God makes with Abram, regardless of how up and down Abram is. This covenant is going to happen. He's going to bring a blessing through Abraham. So that's an up moment. Genesis 16, impatient Sarah suggests Hagar be the one to bring the child, which is a down moment because Abram listens. So we just have this up and down, up and down. His faithfulness of the covenant is up and down, and yet God remains faithful. In chapter 17, God again ratifies the covenant with the sign of circumcision, name changes, Abraham, Sarah, ceremonies and signs. This is an up moment for Abraham. Then in Genesis chapter 18, two visitors come with God, God and two visitors, and they promise Sarah will be the mother. It's the first time that Sarah is explicitly included in this covenant promise. And then they go and they destroy Sodom, which Abraham rightly intervenes or intercedes for Sodom prays for Sodom. And so this is an up moment for him. Genesis 19, Sodom is destroyed. Lot and his family are saved. Some weird things happen in Lot's family. And then in chapter 20, Abraham gives Sarah away again to King Abimelech. Down. A down moment for Abraham. But God intervenes again and brings Sarah back to Abraham. And then in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham and Sarah finally miraculously at the age of 190, Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, they get Isaac, and the promise begins to take shape. This promise of land and blessing and offspring now is a well, a tree, and a little boy. And it's a big up moment for Abraham until you get to Genesis 22, when God says, sacrifice your son as a burnt offering to me. And Abraham obeys. Except at the last moment, God intervenes and says, no, I, instead of a son being sacrificed, here is a ram. Now I know that you fear me, that you love me even more than you love my promises and my gifts. You don't just love the gifts, you love the giver. And now I know, and this is a picture one day, that I am going to give my son as a sacrifice for you. I'm going to give my son as a blood sacrifice for people. Abram, you have been a picture of what God is like of what faithfulness with God is like, of giving a son. And here's what happens is that we get to, the, get to chapter 22, and Sarah read this already, but God then says this, and this is where we'll land the plane with a few takeaways for you. And then we'll be all caught up to resume the story. But these three big covenants, and here it is, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, I, by myself I have sworn, God swears by himself because he can't think of anything bigger to swear on, right? There's nothing greater he could swear by. So God goes, I swear by myself. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore and your offspring 
shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The covenant is still in effect. The covenant is still in effect, Abram. I'm going to keep my promises. You have been up and down, but the final verdict on you is that you are up. You are in. You have trusted in me. You have obeyed me. You have walked with me. You have followed me. It's been imperfect. It's been flawed. It's been full of sin. And yet I am faithful when you fail. And I will hold you. And I will, you can hold me to my promises. I will keep my promises to you. All of the covenants are still in effect. And so Abram returned with his young men. And they arose and went home. And he lived in Beersheba. And what's going to happen now is that the story, Adam or Abram and Sarah next week are going to kind of fade off of the scene. And this promise is now going to follow, um, now going to follow Isaac and then his son, Jacob. And then Jacob is going to become a big nation that moves to Egypt and then ends up in slavery. And for 400 years, they're going to be up in slavery until they're delivered by this God who keeps his promises. And it's at that time, once they're delivered, that they're going to get this story given to them by Moses or yeah, by Moses. So it's amazing. It's amazing. That's sort of the big picture there of the 22 chapters that we have been through together. So just a couple of takeaways. I promise I'm almost done. So what would be the bottom line for the original audience? What would they take away from this? Here's what I think they would say. Here's what I think would be the takeaway for those who first read this book. Yahweh is God. Yahweh, your God is God. He destroyed all of the Egyptian gods. And your God is God, and he is forever faithful to his promises. Yes, it took 400 years, but he did not forget. He did not forget you. He did not forget his promises. And you, dear Israel, as you've been brought out into the desert, you have the distinct honor of pointing the world to the glory of that God. You were made to be a blessing to the world by pointing the world to that God. That's your goal. That's the whole point of your existence, Israel, is to point to that God. So what would be the takeaway for us? As we read this and we go through this, here's some things I'd love for you to, I don't know what's going on. Look at this one. (laughs) Humanity is marked by consistent failure. Like, is that not the, can you find anyone that you would look to and go, yeah, that's a, I'm I'm banking on that one. None of them. Adam, Eve, Noah, any of his sons, Abram. Are any of you signing up to be on their team? (laughs) No. They all fail, every single one. And you and I are the same way. There's no way that we can be, oh, we can be right with God. We can be right with God by our own merits. There's just no way. God is marked by covenant faithfulness. God has never once broke one of his promises. And God's story of redemption through judgment is assured. We can be sure of that. (laughs) This is supposed to be the big moment where everyone is. Okay. Ultimately, all of these promises are found in the one who will crush the head of the serpent on the cross, which is Jesus himself, who will come born of a virgin. We just celebrated this. Remember that promise back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent? It was a promise that I think born of a virgin will come one who can deal with the sin problem. Abraham couldn't deal with it. Noah couldn't deal with it. Every single human being has failed. So God himself comes in human flesh. And here in Matthew 26, I'm going to give you right here. We have a couple more covenants to go as you go through the Bible, but they all point to and find their culmination in Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus, who comes, crushing the head of the serpent, driving out demons, reversing the curse, healing bodies, delivering people from the dead. He is doing all of the things that are required to bring the promises to pass, to reverse the curses, And he sits down with his disciples in an upper room and he says this, and look at the language he uses. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Remember what got us into the mess in the first place? 
was in Genesis chapter 3. A serpent said, take and eat. And that broke our relationship with God. And now Jesus goes, take and eat this. This is the anti-fruit. This is what will deliver you. Take and eat. Take and eat. This is my body. This is what will reverse that. This is what will bring the covenant back into play. This is what will fulfill what has been broken. Take, eat. This is my body. The fruit of the tree of the cross will undo what has happened at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink of it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So we need to think of the world and our relationship with God as a covenant. We broke our covenant with God, all of us. In Adam and Eve, all of us were broken. But now we are given access to a new covenant through Christ who took the death that we deserved and rose again conquering it and now offers us free of charge to all who will come to him in faith, faith like Abraham, faith like Noah, who will come to him in that kind of faith, not trusting in our own works, but trusting only in the one who can bring all of these covenants together and offers us a new and better covenant through Christ himself. So repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and realize that this one big story is a story of redemption, and you can be a part of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for my friends who are willing to listen to a raspy-voiced guy try to cover way too much in a sermon that should be covered. But I pray, Lord, that you have been working in our hearts. I pray that the glory of this story would just blow our minds of how big and wonderful and magnificent you are, how worthy of worship and obedience you are. God, I pray that we would realize just how small we are, how sinful we are, and yet how loved we are. And I pray every single one of my friends here would be in awe of this God and would take him up on the deal, take him up on the covenant, take him up on these promises to redeem and restore and forgive all who come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. I pray, Lord, that you would draw hearts even now to that reality. And may we all rejoice and sing for joy at the great mystery that has been revealed, the great story that is unfolding of you redeeming a broken world through your son. We sing of that now uh, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.